Welcome to the five things this week in social. We're the Webby award-winning podcast that breaks down the five most burning topics in social content and the internet at large. If you're a marketer, an advertiser, or a creator, then trust me when I say you are listening to the right podcast. Today on the pod, we have a very special conversation planned for you. Today, we are excited to present a new kind of episode we're calling Five Things With. And our guest today is Bridget Todd. Bridget is the host of the podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, where she answers questions about technology and the internet. Her podcast miniseries, Disinformed, won a Shorty Award, and she recently was awarded the iHeartMedia Best Tech Podcast Award for There Are No Girls on the Internet. She has been podcasting since 2012, where she produced MoveOn.org's flagship podcast and hosted episodes of Stuff Your Mom Never Told You, Internet Hate Machine, IRL, and Beef. Outside of podcasting, Bridget got her start teaching courses on writing, and social change at Howard University. She has trained human rights activists in Australia and political operatives in the US. She also has coordinated digital strategy for organizations like Planned Parenthood, the Women's March, and MSNBC. She's the founder and CEO of Unbossed Creative, a mission-driven creative studio that makes podcasts and other digital content to push the needle on social change for public good. And we are thrilled to have her join us here on The Five Things. Hello, Bridget. Welcome to The Five Things. Hello, Joey. Thank you so much for having me. What a warm welcome. I feel bad making you read my whole bio. Oh, it was it was <laughs> great. It was great. So with all those accomplishments, I've got a quick question for you. Everything that we want to know, would you rather read minds or have the ability to turn invisible? Oh, definitely turn invisible. I don't want to read people's minds. I'm anxious enough as it is. I very much agree with you. I think it would make podcasting so boring if we could read minds because then, right, like there'd be no reason to ask questions and the audience can't see us anyway. So let's go with invisibility. Well, I'm Joey Scarillo. And now for the task at hand, the five things today, Bridget and I are going to discuss one, Twitter's changes over the past eight months or so. Number two, Apple's new Apple Vision Pro and what it could mean for social. Number three, TikTok fighting back on the Montana ban. Number four, changes in podcasting over the last 20 years. And we will round it out with Bridget's thoughts on the future of the internet. Okay, let's dive right in. Of course, we must start off today with the Elon Musk of it all. So it's no secret at this point that Elon Musk's controversial and unconventional tweets have prompted discussions about the role of public figures on social media. His actions have drawn attention to issues such content moderation, platform rules, and the responsibility of influential users. Musk's behavior has contributed to debates around Twitter's policies, prompting the platform to make changes or clarifications in response to his actions and the ensuing discussions. That's really a big picture. But what we want to know is, Bridget, how has Twitter changed for you personally in the last eight months or so? Oh, me personally? What a good question. I have to say, I use it far less. I was like at one time, like the girl on Twitter, like I used it a lot, probably too much. I would say it just feels different. You know, it feels like less and less of the people that I'm excited to see show up there. More and more people that I guess I'll say I'm not so excited to spend time with 
I feel like their presence has really amplified in the last few months. And more and more, it just doesn't feel like a fruitful way to spend my time. And so, yeah, I'm just not on it as much as I used to be. And there's this Twitter-sized hole in my media diet. I'll be the first person to say that Twitter has never been perfect, but it used to at least be fun. I don't know if I can really say that anymore. That's just how I feel. I agree. I mean, for me, I find myself more on Instagram than when I used to spend that time on Twitter. And I feel like also Twitter now is mostly just TV memes and people in my close circle who really stick it out. But I don't see so many random tweets anymore. Where do you see Twitter going? Like, do you think it's salvageable at this point? It's easy to be kind of doom and gloomy about it. I don't want to take that position. You know, I am hopeful that this new CEO that's been recently appointed will have a better vision for the company. Like, I'm actively rooting for Twitter to do well. I don't want Twitter to fail. I think that as a public, we are better served when we have a platform like Twitter to help inform us, help have discourse, help accurate, timely information rise to the top quickly. You know, when... Big, important things happen, whether around the world or in your community. Twitter is where you went to find information. And so that's a good thing. I'm not rooting for Twitter to fail. I do wonder if this new CEO has a vision that I would call successful, right? Like for me, success is not making Elon Musk lots and lots of money on Twitter. Success is, is this platform really able to be used to foster accurate, thoughtful, timely, honest discourse. And so I would love to see that. And I'm an optimist. I hope that that is where Twitter gets to, but I don't think it gets there without serious, meaningful change, like a real course correction, a real explicit change in the direction that Musk has been taking it for the last few months. Yeah, I also feel like a little bit too with Twitter that I find myself pushing against the algorithm that it's sending me. I feel like I'm getting a lot more things that I normally wouldn't see, you know, as somebody in my demographic who airs on the more blue side of things. So I don't know. I I feel like I have to be a little bit more cautious. I can't just assume that I'm going to fall into my usual bubbles. But who knows? Maybe maybe in a way it's good that we have to sort of be on our heels a little bit more or on our toes a little bit more. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I really get a little frustrated with conversations about like social media, eco chambers and bubbles. If you are a person who leans a bit blue, a bit left, whatever, just day to day, you are going to have engagement with folks on the other side, right? Like, look at what happened with the Supreme Court in the news today. It's not like we are not all being shaped by those perspectives every day. And so the idea that I'm able to just cloister myself into a comfy little liberal bubble is just not true. However, when I log on to Twitter, I'm completely fine with seeing perspectives and opinions that I don't necessarily agree with that make me think, that challenge me. What I don't want to see is slurs. What I don't want to see is, you know, intentional dead naming and misgendering and hate, right? And so I, I would agree with you if what I was seeing was just perspectives that I don't agree with. That would be fine, you know? But what I'm seeing is like hate, transphobia, slurs, things that I just think, or, or even worse, scams and bots and things like that. And so that doesn't feel like the kind of discourse that I'm that I'm looking for from my platform. Yeah, all that stuff has started to creep back in and I'm not here for that either. I, I agree. Okay, let's switch it up a little bit here over to more on the device side of things. So we haven't had a chance to talk about this yet on the show, so I would love to get your point of view. So Apple released their new Apple Vision Pro last month. 
And the big question I think we have, marketers will have, is how does social fit in? So the Apple Vision Pro, despite its impressive features and capabilities, does lack the crucial element of social integration. There was an article in Forbes that highlights the importance of social platforms in tech's landscape and argues that the absence of social features on the Apple Vision Pro put it at a disadvantage compared to its competing devices like Meta's Quest VR headset. So do you think that Apple should be considering incorporating social into the Vision Pro? Absolutely. I completely agree with that perspective you shared earlier. Nine times out of 10, when you reach for a device, whether it's your phone, your iPad, your laptop, what are you going to be looking at first? It's some sort of social media connectivity, right? Your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what have you, maybe Twitter less. I think not having that integration is a real mistake. And I also have a little bit of another unpopular opinion. Folks might disagree, and that is okay. I will I will take your disagreement. I don't see it for face wearables. I don't think that people want to put something clunky on their face and be sitting in their apartment with a big thing on their face. People barely want to wear eyeglasses. That's why we have contact lenses. I just, I don't see it. I just don't see it. Yeah, it's tough. This is a tough one. I feel that if anyone's going to get it right, it's probably going to be Apple. I just don't think it's there yet. And I'm optimistic. I think, you know, from the social aspect of it, I agree with you. I think social does need to be part of it because exactly to your point, when we go into our sort of Apple ecosystem, we we, we get onto our phones, we get onto our computers. The first thing we do, it's Facebook. It's Facebook for some. Uh, it's Twitter. It's, you know, it's even getting on Teams, getting on these chat platforms. We want to be connected to other people. And so I think even with the price point, not that many people are going to be able to afford the Apple Vision Pro. So they're going to have to really do something that makes it more affordable and more equitable for everybody to get involved and find a way that really integrates social. How do you think social could play a role in the Apple Vision Pro? Do you think that we're going to want to see people typing? Are we going to want to see people FaceTiming? How do you think that's going to work? Again, I mean, I this is just my one person's uneducated opinion, right? I think there are going to be people who like that, who want to have a face-to-face -face with their headset, with their boss, instead of talking on the phone or being on Zoom. I think that people are going to want, there, there's, there's going to be a, a certain kind of person who's looking for that. I think the vast majority of people don't want that. Like, how many people are types that when you're on Zoom with your boss, you're thinking, I just want to have my camera off. I don't want to, you know, I when the, when the pandemic started, I was like, does everything have to be Zoom? Can you just call me on the phone? I think that for a lot of people, that level of integration might be too much integration. But I also think that increasingly, that's the kind of world that I think that tech leaders are betting on us wanting to live in, one where we are immersed all the time. And like, we're not just looking at a screen or holding a screen, we're in the screen, we're integrated with the screen. I think they're making a gamble that that's what people want. I personally disagree. I don't think that's what people want. I think that there was an interesting study, I want to say it was out of Pew, but I'll have to double check that, that said that more and more people are feeling anxious about technology, but it feels kind of inevitable for them. And if they could go back to a time before smartphone phones and social media, they would. So I think that people are feeling a little exhausted and overwhelmed by technology. And the way that you, you know, that the response to that would not be, well, have more integration, get into the computer. I just, I don't know. What do you think? You know, that's a good question. I actually, I very much agree. I think that, you know, for me, I find myself putting the phone down more often and, you know, trying to disconnect a little bit more. But at the same time, 
I love my Apple Watch. I love knowing how many steps I've taken for the day. So I think it's just a balance. I think it's just how do we find technology in our day that feels like the right balance? But I, I agree. I do think the wearable thing, I don't know that we're there yet. I don't know if it's because they're so cumbersome. You know, I could imagine it being cool to like watch a movie on the whole wall with these glasses. But like, if I have you over to watch, do I have to have a, a, a headset for you too? You know, it just feels a little weird. I feel like it brings us further from the people that we want to connect with, not closer. And I think your point about the Apple Watch is a really good one. I think the technology wearables that really take off are the ones that are subtle and seamless because that Apple Watch is so subtle, right? Like things that are clunky that like look kind of dorky and look kind of, you know, just I just don't think people are ready to jump into that. So the same way they would for an Apple Watch. Well, we'll see. And I, like I said, I, I do believe, I do trust that Apple can get it right. I think, you know, just first thing out of the gate, it might be a little bit of a shock to people. All right, let's get into something that I think has some huge implications. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this. Okay, so social platforms in hot water, we talk about them on this show all the time. But one that is no stranger is TikTok. A Montana-based nonprofit organization has filed a lawsuit challenging Montana's ban on TikTok in the United States. The organization called Free Expression Montana claims that the ban on TikTok violates the First Amendment rights of the users by restricting their freedom of expression and access to information. The lawsuit seeks to secure funding for Free Expression Montana's legal battle against the ban, arguing that it's crucial to protect the rights of TikTok users and ensure that the government doesn't limit their access to social media platforms. Okay, so what does a TikTok ban actually look like to you? I think it looks like really short-sighted legislation that is meant to make it seem like elected officials are being tough on big tech and really cracking down on big tech while actually accomplishing pretty much nothing that they say that they want to accomplish, right? I will be the first person to say that big tech needs to be reined in. I will be the first person to say that we actually do need meaningful legislation around data privacy, how our data is accessed, how it is used, how people, how third parties are able to profit from it. We'll be the first person to say that. I don't think that this TikTok ban or conversations about banning one specific platform actually accomplish that because there are so many other ways that our data privacy laws keep us vulnerable. And so what I want is for legislators to actually take meaningful steps at protecting the digital privacy of citizens and making sure that our data is not falling into the wrong hands. But I don't think we do that by banning TikTok. I really think that these legislators are, one, kind of falling for the sort of new platform bad, like, rhetoric. Two, I think that this kind of checks the box for them that they've done something while really doing nothing. And I think it, it, it feels like grandstanding to me. And I think what we really need is like meaningful legislation. Yeah, this feels more like a political issue, less like a tech issue. Exactly. So do you think that if, let's just say in a hypothetical world, TikTok got banned throughout the entire US, do you think there would be more knockoff apps like TikTok? I mean, every app is doing TikTok anyway. Or do you think people would be finding illegal ways to get onto TikTok, right, through VPNs and things like that? Great question. I think people would find illegal ways to get onto TikTok. I think it, this legislation, the way that it would have to be enforced feels so murky to me that I think that it would be pretty much meaningless, right? Like, I don't think that I don't think that it would really stop anybody from accessing TikTok. 
And I, and I also think like a bunch of TikTok competitors could could jump up, even though, as you said, like that's kind of the thing now. Everybody's trying to do the swipe up video. But yeah, I don't think this would really stop people from accessing TikTok if that's what they wanted to do. TikTok prohibition. We'd have we'd have like uh, what you, speakeasies. Yes, yeah, TikTok speakeasies. We'd have like bathtub TikTok. So who <laughs> who do you think wins? Like who loses? Who wins if if TikTok gets banned in a state or in the whole country? I think that we lose because I think it allows for legislators to pat themselves on the back and say, yeah, we did something, we really reined in big tech while actually doing nothing to protect the citizenry. And so I think we lose. Listen, there are so many problems with TikTok specifically. Like, I'm not saying that TikTok is the perfect app. I could talk all day about some of the the issues on that platform. However, I think cracking down on that one platform because you want to pat yourself on the back for having done something and it lets you kind of look tough on China or whatever. I don't think the citizens win. So I think that all of us lose. TikTok, even with its problems, has been this great source of information for a lot of people. Like there's so many global issues that I first found out were happening from TikTok, right? And so completely outright banning the platform because you want to grandstand and make it seem like you're actually doing something we all lose when that happens. Absolutely. And how do you engage with TikTok? Oh, I, I'm completely yeah. addicted to TikTok. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, I feel like I learn so much from TikTok. Like, I feel like I'll be scrolling and it's like, oh, did you know that you're supposed to wash your wooden spoons by putting them in boiling water? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. I've lived my whole life and not known that. Like, the amount of information that you're able to absorb. I will say this. I think I have learned more from just the few months that I've been active on TikTok than any other platform. Maybe not Twitter in its heyday, but definitely Facebook, Instagram for yeah, sure. Yeah, like TikTok, you're you're learning like life skills. Twitter, you're wor- right. you're learning about current events. Exactly. I, I like that. Yeah, my TikTok engagement is limited, mostly because as a true middle millennial, I'm usually on Instagram these days. Oh. But when I do go on TikTok, I usually find myself on TikTok for so long that I'm like, okay, I need a break, and then I can't sleep, and it's like a whole thing. But I don't really create TikToks. I just view the TikToks. Yeah, you're like a classic TikTok millennial lurker. And I, I do hear more and more people kind of in our age demographic, um, I'm assuming we're the, around the same age, in light of what's happening with Twitter, are going to Instagram. Like I was at a, ba- a bar recently and people at the end of the night, I feel like usually you'd be like, oh, what's your Twitter handle? It was Instagram handle more, more recently. And I was like, okay, this seems like a shift. Yeah, that's notable. That's interesting. Huh. All right. Well, speaking of shifts, let's talk about podcasting and specifically podcasting about the internet, right? So last month, podcasts celebrated their 20-year anniversary, and they've experienced significant growth and transformation over the past two decades, evolving from something that was really niche to something that's really mainstream and really a key form of entertainment and information. Podcasting provides increased accessibility and a diverse range of voices producing content. However, it faces its challenges and concerns associated with the commercialization and the consolidation from big corporations. So it's good, it's bad, it's great, it's all things. (laughs) (laughs) But in your years of podcasting, what has really stuck out to you as like the biggest change the industry's faced? Oh, I honestly would say the professionalization of the space. You know, I have been podcasting for over 10 years. I've been doing it since before Serial was a thing, which I always like to say. And I have been listening to podcasts for even longer. The first podcast that I ever listened to, and that's still probably my favorite podcast out there, was started back in 2006, right? So that's been a really, really long time. What drew me to the space was that it felt kind of like the wild, wild west, where no one really knew 
like nobody really knew what they were doing. It was like nobody knew what the form was. And so everybody was just trying all different kinds of stuff and seeing what worked. And so all those little, you know, things that you hear in podcasting, like having a specific thing that you say at the end when you sign off or the beginning or little segments, watching that come together in real time was so exhilarating and exciting. And so I would say the thing that's probably changed the most is just kind of losing some of that Wild West ethos and kind of the the space kind of professionalizing a little bit. The professionalization of the space, I do think helps people get into the space a little bit more. It's like the barriers are lower to entry because it's really clear what you need to do to have a podcast. But I also feel sad sometimes because I just miss those days of folks just figuring out the medium and figuring out what worked, what didn't. And it, it really had an energy to it where it was just nerdy weirdos trying stuff out. And I identify as a nerdy weirdo. So it was a really exciting time for me personally. Yeah. So you'd say like the craft over time has really honed in. I think that's true. And I think that over time, I don't want to say things have gotten formulaic. Like it went from there being no forms because nobody knew what this medium was to the bones of a podcast sort of being a couple different templates. Right. And so, yeah, I think I think the craft has really has really changed in that regard. You mentioned the the pre serial days. I also mark podcast listening by pre serial. And I did start listening to podcasts before serial. I have a theory, though, that before serial, most people either got in through This American Life or Mark Marin. Are Ooh. you on are you on either of those two trains? Sort of. I love the, I love that dichotomy. I'll do you one better. I'm on the Marin side, but the podcast that I mentioned that started in 2006 is called Uh Yeah Dude. I wish I could say it's like a very serious, high-minded podcast. It is not. But Marin credits Uh Yeah Dude with him getting his start in podcasting. So he credits them. So I'm going to take the Marin side, but like the the prequel to Marin. Yeah, wow. That is really cool. That That is really, really cool. So are you excited about where podcasting can go? Oh, my God endlessly excited. It's been a rough couple months in the space in terms of people being laid off. And I've had a lot of friends be laid off and that it's horrible. I do think that from my perspective, despite all of that, there is a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the space. I think that a lot of companies and institutions that were not necessarily audio companies, like maybe they were a tech company or a music streaming platform or whatever. I think a lot of those organizations tried their hand at what it would look like for them to do podcasting. And Of course, that's going to have to like level out and course correct of how that goes. It's not surprising to me that that's having a few hiccups right now. But I'm really optimistic that we're going to see things swing back to audio professionals and people who are really excited to be podcasters or professional podcasters and not just people who have big platforms or big names. I really think that we tried this experiment in COVID to see like, oh, well, can just big names, is that what's going to get people to listen? And a lot of money was was bet on that. And I don't think that really worked. I don't think that's what people want. I don't think that's what drives people to be so engaged in the medium. I think we're going to see the pendulum swing back to people who are passionate and really, really have something to say and love audio. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, the thing I will say to anybody out there, I mean, probably not anybody listening to this because it's a podcast. <laughs> but anybody out there who might say there are too many podcasts, I will just come back and say this, my friend. Are there too many books? Mm. Right? And when you look at the... That's a, such, good, such a good point. When you look at the numbers of how many YouTubers there are, how many musicians there are, there are... It's, it's not even close. Podcasting is still a pretty new field. And so I completely agree with you. There are, People always ask me, oh, is it too late to start a podcast? If you've got something to say and you've got a message and you've got passion, do it. It's never too late. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. The thing is, it's never too late to start. Just do it. Just 
get out there. All right. Well, that brings us to our fifth and final thing of the day. We are just rocking and rolling. (laughs) You're such a pro interviewer. Oh, thank you. Our fifth and final thing is the future of the internet. On your show, There Are No Girls on the Internet, you discuss how technology is in such a weird place. And on your new season, you're exploring how women are mapping out a better and brighter future today for technology. So what can listeners expect from an episode of your show? Oh, I love this question. You can expect curiosity about where we've been, like honoring where we've been when it comes to the internet and technology, and really looking to the future. No matter how bad things get, I will always count on women and people of color and young people and people who are passionate to lead us through and show us the light. And so on this season of There Are No Girls on the Internet, those are the voices that I'm really trying to highlight. I think that we're having all of these conversations about technology and media and social media with like new platforms like Blue Sky, the rise of things like AI. And I think it can be confusing and I think it can be kind of dark. And so there are people who are kind of pioneering and leading the way. And a lot of those people are women and queer folks and trans folks and young folks and people who are not necessarily always centered in the conversation. And so who better to lead us into this future that we're all going to and help us explore it? And so on There Are No Girls on the Internet, you will hear from folks doing exactly that. And hopefully the conversations are informative and fun. Yeah. Is there a recent conversation you think might be particularly interesting to marketers? Ooh. Oh, yes. So we have an episode coming up about this influencer brand trip that a bunch of influencers took for the fast fashion retailer Shein, as in Shein, a lot of trouble for going on this brand (laughs) trip. (laughs) I can't take credit for that. That's a joke I read in the New York Times, but I loved it. And I think it really speaks to influencer marketing and how critical it is that people who are influencers who are engaging in influencer marketing campaigns with big brands really do their homework, really vet these brands, really have a sense of your own audience and your values and your obligations to that audience. I think that we're in this weird space where Everybody wants to be an influencer. Everybody wants to be famous, have a big platform. And so people are making big brand deals without really thinking, is this brand values aligned? Is taking money from this brand and promoting this brand really going to be serving my audience? Am I going to find myself at the center, the main character of the internet because I worked with this brand, right? Nobody wants that. And so I think that we're in this stage where people are kind of pumping the brakes on just saying yes to any big deal that comes out because they want to be an influencer. I think people are, I think influencers and brands alike are being a little bit more savvy and choosy about how they establish these collaborations. Very interesting. I mean, we talk about influencer marketing on this show quite a bit, and it it feels like it is such an ever-changing and, you know, up and down roller coaster. But it always feels like we're always learning something new and something new to not do. So that's really interesting. What are you most hopeful for when it comes to the internet? Oh, I love this question. I think I am most hopeful about the fact that people are feeling like regular people, not people who think of themselves as like techies or super online. I think people are feeling really engaged and excited about the internet and I think that we're starting to see a shift in the relationship between big tech companies and platforms and everyday users. I think users are starting to ask some questions about like, well, hey, how are you using my data? And are you profiting off of me? And I don't even realize it. And did I consent to all the things that you're doing when I check the box on your update or whatever? I'm excited because I think that people are 
really starting to unlearn that lie that you have to be an engineer or an expert or something to have a say about how the technology that you use every day, that you wear and have in your purse every single day, to have an opinion about how that technology shows up in your life. And that's very exciting to me. We as users have so much power, and I think that we're really starting to step into that power. I am a little wigged out by how quickly the conversation around AI has moved. Mm -hmm. And I would say specifically how quickly we all just agreed with the people who make money from making AI that like this is going to change all of our lives. You're going to have to learn about AI if you want to keep your job. AI will take your job. AI will do a better job at your job than you can do at your job as a human. I think what scares me is how quickly we have been sold that narrative and how some of our folks in power, like our elected officials, folks that make decisions, have accepted that as, as you know, correct as well. You know, I, I think like we're seeing it with the WGA strike where I don't think that we're there yet where you can have a writer's room with one writer and the rest is just AI. But I think that a lot of studio executives might disagree. And I think it's really curious and a little scary how quickly they bought that and said, yep, we could just have AI write this movie. I don't want to live in a world where AI tries to write succession. I want to live in a world where writers write succession. Absolutely. The thing, I think the true test of AI's power will come one year from now. Because let's think back a year ago, how often were we saying words like Web3, <laughs> Metaverse, Crypto, NFTs, and where are they now? So, oh my God. So let's see where AI can go. We'll give it a fair shake, but I'm, I agree with you. I, I think it's terrifying how quickly we jumped right in and we just said like, yep, that's what we're going to do. And yeah, I don't know. It still kind of freaks me out. I don't like the artwork. It's, it creeps me out. Ugh. The Uncanny Valley is weird. Don't like it. And I think your Web3 crypto comparison is so apt. I went to South by Southwest, I think it was two years ago now, and it was crypto everywhere. It was like, that was clearly the thing. I went the next year, crypto who? NFT who? We don't know her. Yeah. It was like it was like it never happened. How quickly it faded from everybody's consciousness. Yeah, the internet turns fast. Mm -hmm. What is the best thing you've seen on the internet recently? And is it the Bill Hader meme? Oh, I wait, what's the Bill Hader meme? I love Bill Hader. I haven't seen this. Oh, it's all over like TikTok and Instagram where it's like it's like that song and he's dancing. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, that's I'm not is gonna sing there. it. Don't even ask. <laughs> <laughs> that is up there. Mine is a little bit weird. It's this thing on TikTok where guys are dancing to this song by Pine Grove and they're doing this little dance. And it's like, I'm doing it, but it's a podcast. so You can't see it. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me about that is how when TikTok first came out as ByteDance, it was like a dancing app. And then for so long, everybody was like, it's just a, an app for dancing. And that's, you know, for kids and blah, blah, blah. And now we've kind of swung back around where mostly grown men are kind of connecting and engaging by doing this dance. I find it so interesting how everything old is new again. And on the internet, things just fold in on themselves and become new. It's just fascinating to me. It's not, it's not funny, but it's just interesting. Yeah, no, everything kind of comes around. I mean, you know, I often will think it's interesting how all the clothes that I gave away to the thrift stores 10, 15 years ago, you know, you know, Gen Z's wearing it now and making <laughs> claiming it as their own. But that is a different podcast. That's a different day for another show. All right. Well, that does it for us this week. I want to give an enormous thank you to our guest, Bridget Todd. Bridget, thank you so much. Oh my God, Joey. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. I'm so glad. And you can listen to her podcast. There are no girls on the internet everywhere you find podcasts. She is on Twitter at Bridget Marie. And if you would like to learn more about Unbossed Creative, you can reach out to them by emailing hello 
at unbossedcreative.com. This week, the podcast team and I would like to thank Ariel Nissenblatt, Lauren Passell, and Leah DeMaio. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints. Or just send us a thing you want us to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. As always, I want to thank Samantha Geller and Amanda Fuentes and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. And this week, a special shout out to Cameron and Caroline. On the most recent episode of Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, we chatted with the founder and principal of Slash Objects, Ariel Asoline Lichten, about her dream to create a furniture design studio that transforms the human experience and produces work that aims to create social change. Ariel is a Best of NYC by Design winner, and she was a finalist on the HBO Max show, Ellen's Next Great Designer. You'll hear Ariel's story of how she brought together her interest, architecture background, and entrepreneurial spirit to create slash objects. She discusses how the pieces she creates have a journey and life of their own. We'll be back next week with our usual format of the show. We appreciate you staying with us and enjoying our special June episodes and the few weeks we took off for the summer. That's it for us. Thank you, listener. And as always, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York, produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller, mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin, with post-production support from Ned Martin, additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.